Thank you so much, ladies, for that. Take your Bible, please, and turn to James chapter 5. Today we are finishing our series in the book of James, and next week we'll begin a two-week series uh, on some Christmas, Christmas-themed messages. Looking forward to that. I hope you join us next Sunday morning for that. James chapter 5, we finished the book today. Welcome to everyone joining us in the overflow room. I try to slip out and say hi to them briefly um, every Sunday, and it's always good to see uh, folks over there. And um, uh, be sure, if, you, if you're able at some point to rotate through that, it'd be a great help to us as we struggle with our space issues here. It's helpful to have people rotating through that. We usually have about 30 or so over there, 20 to 30, and so it's great to have help. And uh, if you're able to do that at some point, we'd love, really appreciate that. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, is our text for today. That, uh, you know, when, when someone goes through something at church, when someone in the church body experiences pain and hardship, you know, it really should matter to you. It should, it should impact your heart. Uh, when people come and they join themselves to a church body, we ought to take it upon ourselves to incorporate them into the church. Speaking directly to you, church members, people who have been at Harvest for a long time, and, you know, when people, when newer folks come, your job, part of your job is to carry their burdens and to love them and to accept them and to embrace them. Because when one person, when one member hurts, we all hurt. When one member is joyful, we all are joyful. I'm thinking specifically of uh, what Shane and Karen are going through right now with Ashley and all that's happening there, and you need to be praying for them. And I know a lot of you are. I, I, I don't say this to rebuke you. I say this to encourage you, because um, there have been so many of you who have been uh, around one another, surrounding each other. Some of you are going through difficulties in your relationships at home. Uh, maybe you have a child that's, that's far from God, and you have friends in this church that support you and encourage you and uphold you. And I, we have a responsibility that to each other. We really do. There is a responsibility we have to intercede for each other, to go to God for one another. And, and a, a lot of people in today's culture think about church the same way they think about college football, which is that you might put on a jersey, you might go, but like if you actually were to participate, you'd probably be thrown in jail. You know, have you ever seen the people who run onto the field in the middle of the game and they have to stop everything and get the guy and take him away? Some of you are so afraid to get involved in ministry. You're like, if I get involved, I might not be allowed back. And, and the reality is, is that when it comes to our participation in ministry, we ought to be involved. We're not to consider ourselves to be spectators sitting on the sidelines just watching what happens. Um, our thought can sometimes be, let the professionals handle it. I'm not going to get myself involved in that. But we, we as Christians, when we come to church especially, it's a reminder that we're not an island to ourselves, that we're not, we're not here just for ourselves and we have responsibilities to each other. James, as I've mentioned over and over again, is a very practical book, and it gives a lot of practical help as he writes to the scattered, persecuted church. A lot of people, a lot of believers who experience a lot of hardship. How should they encourage and have responsibility for each other? Let's look at God's Word in just a moment. First, let's pray and ask for God's grace. Father, we ask you now that you please help us as we interpret this Word, as we open it up and allow you to speak. I pray that your Word would be clear to us, You'd help us to see exactly what we ought to do as a result. Help us to be obedient to you, Lord, in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. James chapter 5, let's look at verse 13. Let's read this verse together. If you look at your Bible, it says, If anyone among, is anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. I believe the first thing you can do as a Christian uh, to show the responsibility you have for one another is to set an example 
what I'm calling God-centered living. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. I, there's not a lot we're going to spend on this, on this one verse, but I want you to notice what he says here. This is so important, that we should have set an example for other people of putting God at the center of our life. Because as you experience life as a believer in Christ, you should respond to it as a believer should respond. There are two categories given. The first category is a suffering, and the suffering person has a simple requirement placed upon him. Is anyone among you, anyone in the church, this is talking about believers, is anyone among you suffering? Here's what you should do. You should pray. The word suffering literally means to have a bad experience. It means to bear hardship in your life. In fact, this is what the prophets endured. If you look back at James chapter 5 and verse 10, the same word is used. He says, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of what? suffering. He says, suffering, excuse me, <clears throat> my voice is suffering a little bit. And he says, suffering and patience. This is the, the, what, the, what the, um, the, the prophets endured. <clears throat> they suffered, and they prayed to God through their suffering. We see this in James 1.12. He says, if any man endures temptation, blessed is the man who endures temptation. When he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life. For those who endure temptation, for those who endure pressure, those who endure testing, he says, you should pray when you're experiencing suffering. Now, we don't know what we're supposed to pray about. He doesn't say specifically here, but part of me thinks that he's not necessarily telling us we need to pray about escaping suffering. We need to pray to experience God's presence in suffering. That's been the theme here in the book of James. Put it this way, your suffering and how you handle suffering ought to be an example to other people in church. You want, I, I, I hope, and, and don't think about this the wrong way, but think about it this way. You ought to think, how I'm handling this situation, can someone look at my life and say, I, I want to handle suffering like that person handles suffering? When you're experiencing suffering, you have an opportunity. Pray, make it about God, go to God, don't complain to other people, don't just moan, don't just be angry about things. Pray. The suffering person must pray. On the other side of this, we see the cheerful person must sing. You see this in verse 13. Is anyone among you cheerful? Someone who's experienced the blessings of God. What's the temptation for somebody who's experiencing uh, the kinds of blessings in their life? Well, I mean, obviously, I, I, I think a lot of the temptation is the claims that I'm the, I'm, the benefit, I'm the reason why I'm experiencing this blessing. I made some good decisions, and so some good things are happening, and I'm pretty good. You know, I'm pretty thankful for myself, right? I, I, I don't think people, you would be quite as blunt as that, but some of us in our mind might think to ourselves, well, I'm pretty good at this, right? And because I'm experiencing this good thing, I'm cheerful, I am, I am praising myself, but that's not what this word, word sing means. The word sing means to sing psalms or praise to God. You should not be bragging about your abilities. You should be singing praises to God. You need, if you're, if you're suffering or, if you, are, or if, if you are cheerful, you need God just as much as you're cheerful as if you're suffering. I think sometimes we tend to think, when I'm suffering, that's when I really need God. When I'm, things are going great, I don't need God quite as much. He says, no, 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 you need God in both circumstances. You need to orient your life so God is the center of your life. It ought to be a pattern for other believers in the church. Colossians chapter 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. How? In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You, are need, you need to be a, a, a Christian who sings songs. You say, Pastor, my voice, I mean, my, my singing ability just isn't very good. I don't see any like, um, caveat or any like, exception in this verse or in that other, any of the verses in the Bible that say that you're allowed to not sing or not praise God if you can't carry a tune. It doesn't say that. 
You ought to sing and praise the Lord even if you can't. In fact, I think that's some of the most wonderful singing. I mean, what we heard just now right before I got to preach, that was beautiful. That was all in tune, and I'm very thankful for that. And you know what? Um, we might not let you get up here and do, and do your singing. That's fine, you know, but you can sing where you are, and you can praise the Lord. You can make a joyful noise to the Lord. You can sing to Him. We have a responsibility to demonstrate how to live in the ups and downs of life. You need to demonstrate this to your children, demonstrate this to your friends, demonstrate this to your spouse. We need to demonstrate what it's like to live in the ups and downs of life. The ups and downs of life, like Ecclesiastes talks about, everything there's a season. He says, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what's planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. There's a time for these things. We must put everything in the perspective of how can I praise God through this situation and be a, a centered on God person. We must frame every experience as a response to God. Secondly, we need to, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our message today, starting in verse 14. We need to intercede for those who need help. Not everyone responds rightly to the circumstances that come into his life. What do, you, what do you do when someone doesn't place God at the center and, and can't pray when they're suffering? They're going through hardship, and they, they just can't pray. There is a place for the church to come together and to engage in the work of intercession. Now, the word intercede means to go on behalf of someone else, to go on behalf of someone else in their behalf, maybe go to God in their behalf. The first intercession we need is framed for those who are in need. Notice this practice of intercession, verses 14 and 15. He says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and will, the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, before we get into what this passage means and how we should interpret, how we should obey it, we're going to walk through exactly what it says and be very clear about what the passage is saying and what it's not saying. We're going to carefully draw out of the passage what the Bible's teaching, and then we're going to ask ourselves, how can we, adapt, how can we understand it and apply it? First question I want to ask is, what commands are being given? What expectations are laid out? And who is involved? What are the identities of the people involved? I have this on your outline as well. You can follow along carefully. First, I want you to see the responsibility of the sick. Look at verse 14. He starts with the responsibility of this believer, this sick person, and what must he do? It says a sick person must call for the elders. That's the same office as pastor. The elders are pastor of the church. It's the sick person who takes the initiative in this engagement. As a sick person must call for the elders of church, this is different from what we saw above, where the one who is suffering is to pray here for some reason. We don't know yet what it is. For some reason, this person cannot pray for himself. He calls for other people to come and pray for him. Second, I want you to know the responsibility of the elders in 14b. What should the elders or what should the pastors of a church do? The Bible tells us these elders are to come to the sick when he calls for them that they must pray over him and they must pray for him and that they should anoint him with oil. And this is some sort of act of faith that comes from the believing elders and their work here. You also notice they should do this in the name of the Lord. 
So you just follow what the passage says. They are to go to the sick person. They are to pray over him. They are to anoint him with oil, and they should do this in the name of the Lord. And their prayer is in the name of Jesus Christ. God says that there's anything in his name, he will do it. This is where the human responsibility of this passage stops. Do you see that? We have the, the requirement of the sick, the requirement of the elders, the responsibility of the elders, and now the responsibility of the Lord. Look at verse 15. The Lord's work is listed, in, listed here in this passage. He says, the prayer of faith will save the sick. Who does that work? Well, implicit of that is the Lord. The Lord is the one who will do the healing. There will do the saving. Secondly, we see the Lord will raise him up. Who raises him up? Explicitly stated, the Lord is the one who does it. And the third thing we say is that if he has sinned, if there's sin involved here, the Lord will forgive him. Once again, we have explicitly stated the Lord is the one who will forgive. The first one is, I think, implicit, that, that he will be saved by the Lord, but the other two are explicitly stated that the Lord will do this work. So here we see the responsibility of the sick, the responsibility of the elders, and lastly, the responsibility of the Lord in this scenario. So let's ask some questions. How do we understand this passage about intercession. This is a challenging passage. What are we to do with this? And undoubtedly, those of you in Sunday school had a lot of fun talking about this at your tables. But let's ask the question, what kind of sickness is this? So the word sick appears twice in this passage. If you look in your Bible, look, look with me at verse 14 and verse 15. And you might need to circle things. If you have margins, you might want to write some things down. This is very important. Verse 14, it says, is anyone among you sick? Okay then he will call for the elders of the church. And then look at verse 15. The second reference, the prayer of faith will heal the what? We heal the sick. So that's our second reference to sick. What we notice about these two words is that they're not the same word, which is very interesting. The first word sick is a very general word for sick. It's the word asthenao. If you've taken Greek before, you know that word. It can mean a lot of things. It can mean someone who's weak or feeble. It can mean someone who is um, who is sick physically. It can mean someone who is, who is unable to do something. Uh, it can mean someone who's tired. It has a lot of different meanings. It's a very broad word, like our word sick is. You might say he's sick in the head. That means something completely different to say that he's sick at home. We use the word sick all the time. You might even say someone does a really cool trick on their bike. You say, that was sick. <laughs> the word sick has a broad meaning in English. It has a likewise a broad meaning. I don't think they would use the word sick in that way in Greek, but the point is, it's a large semantic domain. So we have to ask ourselves, what is he talking about? We're very much helped out by the second word. Because the second time he uses the word sick, he uses this word that's, in our English, we'd use the word, we'd say the word, we'd say it, camno. Okay, that's how you'd say it in English, camno. But in 5.15, it's a very specific word for sick. And, and what we see in the New Testament, this word is used a few times. It's not a very common word, but used a few times. We're going to look at those one by one. I want to help you along the path to understanding exactly what he's saying. And I think as I take you along this journey, it will really help you understand and apply this passage today. First, I want you to see Hebrews chapter 12. If you want to turn there, you can, but I'm going to put everything up on the screen. Hebrews chapter 12, I want to read from verse 1 all the way to verse 3. He says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, context of that verse is chapter 11, all the people of faith, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. The word weary is the word kamno. The picture is someone who is discouraged deeply and weary of heart. And he says, you need to keep your eye on Christ who endured these things, lest you become weary and discouraged of heart, lest you become discouraged. It's actually paired with the word, the literal word discouraged, to give us a fleshing out of that meaning. And this is someone, something that can happen to someone who doesn't have endurance in the race that's set before them. They take their eyes off Christ, they start to become weary. He says, weariness is a very big problem. Hold on to that word. Look at Revelation chapter 2. In verse 2 and 3, here he's talking to one of the churches of Revelation. Jesus says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, have found them liars. You have persevered and have patience. Notice the continual theme here. Perseverance and patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become what? Weary. Now think about it. He's saying the opposite of weariness in this particular case is endurance and standing strong which is a continual theme in the book of James. In fact, if you even go to the Old Testament, the book of Job, the book of Job was not originally written in Greek, but it was translated into Greek about 200 years before Jesus was born. And this is one of the verses that uses this word kamno. Job chapter 10, after going through an extreme amount of pressure, an extreme amount of trial, says this, my soul loathes my life. He says, I am despairing of my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. He is discouraged. He is depressed. He has a bitter soul. So what does this sickness, camno, mean? Well, the first word sick can mean anything from a general kind of sickness to an outright disease. This second word narrows our focus and helps us understand what he's talking about. To my eye, and I think biblically here, it's obvious from this context that when James refers to people who are sick, he's not talking about those of you who have cancer, have a broken leg, or a blood disease. He's specifically referring to people who are weary, those who despair of life, and those who are discouraged in their soul. In our Bible, or in our, I should say, in our modern world today, we call this clinical depression. We call this anxiety disorders. This is referring to someone who has a serious spiritual issue that has caused physical weakness and weariness so that they despair of life, they may not be able to even get out of bed. Have you known people like this? Of course you do. People all over our country today who are in these shoes, they, they have experienced extreme, extreme depression where they can't even get out of bed in the morning. They go days staying in bed because they are weak. They cannot get out of bed. They despair of their life. They loathe their life. They don't have any endurance left. They are sick in this sense. They are emotionally and spiritually downtrodden. And so what must the sick person do? As we say what kind of sickness this is, I say he is depressed or discouraged and has bitterness in his soul. He has given up and has lost hope. This is a key point. The person who is in bed at this point has lost hope. They're not the ones who are suffering and can pray. They need someone else to come on their behalf and pray. He recognizes, the person here recognizes the spiritual nature of his depression, and so what he does is he calls for the elders of the church to come pray over him. He calls, he recognizes there's a spiritual element to what he's enduring, what he's going through, and he can't pray for himself. So then related to that, what kind of healing is being granted? 
Well, there are several things involved here. What kind of healing is being granted? Well, we see here that the Lord, it says, will rescue him. Look at verse 15. It says, he will be saved. He will be rescued. This is not speaking of someone who was going to hell, and now they're going to heaven. That's not the context of this word saved. In fact, in the book of James, the word saved almost always has to do with being rescued from the effects of sin as believers. You believers get involved in sin, you will experience a tremendous amount of problems. And he says, you need to be rescued from that, delivered from that, uh, that you need, not that you need to be saved from, from hell, you need to be rescued from the depths of your anguish. This is used throughout the book of James. I mean, look at verse, chapter 1 and verse 21. He says, lay aside filthiness and overflow of wickedness, receive the meekness, the implanted word, which is able to rescue or save your soul. In fact, in in chapter 2 and verse 14, this is what we talked about a few weeks ago, he says, can faith without any active work, can that work save him? Can it rescue him? Can it do any good? Absolutely not. So look at verse 14 of of chapter 2. He says, can you you act, uh, can you have faith uh, in your life uh, that that is not rescue, can, can faith rescue you if it's not actively working? So first, we see that God says He will rescue. He will rescue him. Secondly, we see the Lord will raise him up. Look at this. He says um, that, that as God uh, rescues him, He will save the sick, and He will raise him up. I, if, he faced, if you've ever faced the black hole darkness of depression, you know the feeling of, of not being able to get up and go. Th- this is a reason I think that the elders are called to go to the sick person, because he can't get up. You go to the sick person because he's unable to go anywhere. This is the reason they need intercession. They're immobilized. They are, they are weak. They are stuck. He's unable to come to the church body and gather to worship. He can't be here to have his soul refreshed. He's unable to rise, but who will raise him up? The Lord will raise that person up. Look at the third promise, that if this person has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Sometimes things like clinical depression can come from physical effects. People come off serious surgeries, go through dark bouts of depression, almost always. In fact, I've started telling people go through a serious, if you go through a serious surgery, let me just warn you, like if you have open heart surgery, if you have a serious surgery, you're going to face some dark thoughts and some dark times. It is, it is almost 100% physical. There's a physical uh, thing that happens when your body is opened up like that, your body is repairing itself, and you go through dark times. That is very normal. It's documented. It's very, it's very obvious. And I often will tell people when they go through, I'm praying for you because I know you're getting ready to go through some hard thoughts and some hard things. God is with you. People go through that. There are people who have accidents. People have experienced sudden unexpected loss, in fact, will experience great sadness. And left on its own, that will spiral into depression or into hopelessness. Those who've had physical accidents, like I mentioned, or brain damage, sometimes have serious bouts with depression. I've talked to them. I've talked to these people who have physical uh, effects. Sometimes a chemical response due to a medicine will throw a person into a psychotic episode, causing fits of weakness and depression. But sometimes, sometimes... What happens is people face severe depression because of a spiral of sin and wickedness. Not always, but sometimes. Sometimes their choices violate God's law and God's good things for them. And because of the severe guilt of their sin, people face sadness, people face despair, and they don't know where to look. They don't understand the forgiving power of God. They don't understand how God, how could God ever forgive me for what I've done? People go through spirals of depression, and they're, and they're getting an addictive sense, like adultery or like alcohol, pornography, drugs. They feel intense embarrassment over this, and they feel guilt, and they know it's wrong, but they can't stop doing it. Sin is a major cause of some people's depression. 
Not every cause. I want to be clear. I'm not telling you to get off your drugs and throw them in the toilet and go away. If, you're, if, the, if, the, if, the, if the doctor has you prescribed on something, hear me loud and clear. I am not telling you to stop taking any medicines you're taking or anything like that. I'm talking about if you are undergoing a spiritual difficulty here that is winding you into hopelessness, you need to listen carefully. Because God gives answers for people who are wandering towards hopelessness because of their sin. Because sin, disobeying God, can often lead to terrible consequences which make people very sad. And rather than deal with the reason they're sad, that is their sinful behavior, what some people do is they see this great looming sadness and it leads to more sin, more guilt, more loss, and more sadness. And it's a spiral that is going to continue uninterrupted until it's interrupted by the grace of God. And people need to understand that a lot of the trouble that we face today in extreme sadness and extreme hopelessness is because of the sin that we're engaging in and we're not dealing with right. And when you find yourself and you say, I don't know how to handle this, I, and often people who face this kind of clinical depression or, or depression, and you say to yourself, I can't, I have, I'm hopeless, I have despair, I cannot face this. Christians face sadness all the time. Christians will face sadness, and extreme sadness is to be expected. But sadness without hope, this is the key, sadness without hope, whether you realize it or not, is denying the power of God and the hope of God, because God always gives hope. God always gives hope. He is the God of hope. Romans 15 says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing faith that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God always provides and gives hope. No Christian should ever be hopeless. So God is offering here a recipe for how we handle when our souls are so depressed and so hopeless we don't know what to do. God says, here's what you do. If you're sick, if you're weak, if you're in bed and you can't get out, you call for the elders of the church, you call for the pastors, you show your faith towards God that you don't know what to do, but you know God has the answer. And then those pastors will come to your house and they will pray over you, and they will anoint you with oil, and they will follow this prescription here. And the promise is that God will raise you up, that God will heal your weakness and your sickness, and that God will give you hope. And if you have forgiven sins, this is one of the only passages in the Bible that talks about what's called intercessory prayer for someone else's sins. We're not normally supposed to ask forgiveness for someone else's sins, but in this case, we're prescribed to do just that because this person feels like they can't even come to God. feels like their prayers are not being heard. feels like, what's the use of me praying? God can't help me. This is the prescription that God calls for those of us who experience darkness and hopelessness. And we ought to recognize there is a spiritual element to this. No Christian should ever be hopeless. What's the method for intercession. You'll notice in verse 16, he says, the main thing that makes us all work is that we are coming to God by prayer. Look at verse 16. He says, confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails or works much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. If you look back at verse 15, he talks about the prayer of the sick, prayer for the sick. If he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. That's the context here. This is praying for one another, interceding for each other for the sins that they have committed. Going to God and saying, Lord, I pray for my brother here and for the sins he has committed. I beg of you, please forgive him for those sins. 
You're called to do that. The pastors are called, the elders are called to do that in this particular case. We should also pray for each other. This is something that ought to be the regular way we do things. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul ends this book. He says, brethren, pray for us. He begged the church to pray for him. Why? Because prayer of a righteous man works much. Much is done through prayer. God chooses to do amazing things through the prayer of righteous people people who walk close with God, who are objectively righteous because of the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses them from all sins. Romans chapter 5 and verse 19 says, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. By one man's obedience, that's Christ dying on the cross, many will be made what? We're made righteous. You can be a righteous one before God, and you can go to God in faith and beg of Him, and God will hear your prayer. And He gives us an example of an Old Testament prophet named Elijah. Now, Elijah, he was a cool man. I mean, this guy was a, was a rough and tumble character. He had a lot of guts. He goes and stands before the king, and he says, three and a half years, you're not going to receive any rain. Now, to do that, it's basically an act of, of like sabotage or of of domestic terrorism, you might even say, because the guy, I mean, if you don't have rain on your crops, how are you going to live? It's a sign of God's judgment. God heard his prayer, and Elijah, who he says has a man like a nature like ours, that is, there's nothing really special about him in his essence. We tend to think about these people of the Bible as heroes who are different from us. We tend to think of them as being larger than life, what God says is these people had the same faults that you and I have. And wouldn't you know it, what does Elijah experience after his great victory at Mount Carmel? He runs away from a woman who threatens his life into the desert and experiences a bout of depression. He says, God, just kill me now. I'm no better than my father's. And what does God do? God sends an angel to visit with him, feeds him, tells him to sleep. He feeds him again, tells him to go back to sleep. He feeds him one more time, goes back to sleep. He wakes up and he gives him a task. He tells him what to do. And he goes on and obeys God. Can you imagine the hopelessness, how high and how low Elijah went? He experienced this kind of stuff. He was just like you. He was just like me. And when we go through hardship like this, what was Elijah's prayer? Elijah's prayer was answered by God. Elijah prayed that there would be a drought, there would be rain, and God honored these prayers so when we go and we pray for one another, you believe that God has the power to honor those, prayer as to, those prayers as well. Look at the third thing here we see is that the results of intercession, I'm calling this results, rescue. In verse 19, he says, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. I want you to notice a few details about this passage that I think are very important. First, who are the ones who are wandering? It's a hard truth to hold on to, but he says it, that believers can wander. He says, those among you, he uses this phrase several times in the book of James, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, James 3, who is wise and understanding among you? James 4, where do wars and fights come from among you? Over and over again, he says, is any among you? Is any among you? And there he says, brethren, if any among you wanders. Do you care about when people stop walking with God? 
Do you notice when you don't see someone in a long time, they haven't been to church in a long time, and you, you care about them, you just haven't seen them, and you're worried about them, and you pray for them, and you, you maybe seek them out, and they're not walking with God anymore. Are you, are you compassionate towards them? Do you love them? Do you love them enough to say something? He says here, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and then someone turns him back. Notice this. He says that there is, a, there is a task that believers can have. When you are part of a body of believers who take seriously responsibility we have to each other, you start to notice when people wander, and you need to turn them back. The first thing we saw is that there are people who will wander, and there are people who can be turned back. No one is beyond the grace of God. There might be people who you say, well, I don't know what happened to him. Man, I thought he was a Christian, but look at his life now. It doesn't seem like he's a Christian at all. You don't know the state of his soul. You don't know where he is. God knows who he is. God knows where he is. And friend, think of him as a believer who you desperately want to come back to the faith, rescue him, and turn him back from the error of his ways. It says you can even save the soul from death. Your care for him will rescue him, not eternal death and hell, but the death that comes from sin, like James 1.5 says, when, when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and when sin, when it's finished, brings forth death, destruction. And you will, he says also here, he says, you will cover a multitude of sins. Your work of intercession will rescue if you respond the right way. Or I should say, if they respond the right way. If they confess their sins, they can find forgiveness and restoration. You have a responsibility towards those who wander, to love them, to seek them out, to cover their sins, to pray for them. Why do you need to intercede for other people? Well, because you want to rescue them from sin overtaking their lives. You have a responsibility towards one another. Each one in this room has responsibility to the people around you, people to your left, people to your right, people in front of you, people behind you, even people in the overflow room. We have responsibility towards each other. People who are not here, think about who's not here. Think about who you miss. Think about who's been wandering. Seek them out. As we look back at this passage, we see a couple of things very clearly. Notice how God takes a center stage in this text. When we're facing joy, when we're facing hardship, we should talk about God, talk to God about it. We should praise Him. We should pray to Him. We should make Him the center of our life. When you can't talk to God about your pain, when you feel like you can't be heard, you call for the elders of the church to come intercede for you so you can rejoin the fellowship, so you can be part of the fellowship, so you can pray and sing. And for those who've wandered and fallen away, those who are in sin, we have a responsibility, I believe, to reach out to them and rescue them for where sin is taking them. Would you renew your commitment to the people around you in the name of Jesus? So because I love Christ, I will love you. Because I love my Lord and Savior, I will reach out to you, and I will care for you. Would you do that today? Let's close the prayer and ask God to work. <laughs> Father, we thank you for this very practical book that we've been able to work through over the past several months. How we are to live a life in a church among believers. Uh, Father, our heart is heavy for those who have not yet trusted you as Savior, who do not know the fellowship of Christ. I pray that they would humble themselves, seek your face. I pray they'd recognize you've given them you, you will give the free gift of salvation to anyone who comes in faith. That all the work to be done has been accomplished, and they need but trust you, and they would be saved. Father, we pray. 
Lord, our hearts are also burdened for those around us who are struggling. We know our friends, we know neighbors, we know loved ones, maybe even ourselves who are struggling seriously with bouts of hopelessness and fear and despair. And we wonder if you are there, we wonder what we can do next. And Father, I pray that there would be a a hope of faith that comes from the heart of the believer who is in bed, who is unable to move, who is struck with this despair. I pray that you would stir in them a desire to reach out, that they would call for the elders of the church, that they would see healing, true healing for their great despair. And Lord, I pray that we recognize there's nothing beyond your control, nothing beyond your hand. You are the great God and Savior. You're the sovereign one, the Lord. And this Christmas season, as we rejoice in the coming of Christ, taking on human flesh, becoming a man, taking on the the weaknesses of humanity, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Wherefore, you highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. And we're thankful for the Lord Jesus who gives us grace that we might sing when we go through suffering, that we might pray when we go through suffering, that we might sing with joy when we go through good times. And Father, I pray for those who are wandering. We know Several, several came to my mind this week as I was preparing. I pray, God, you'd work in their hearts and draw them back to you. Lord, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for this time. The piano is going to play for a moment. We're going to have a time of quiet. I'm going to ask all of us here at Harvest, we just keep our eyes closed, our heads bowed, and we deal with the Lord in this moment. thank you that you have brought us through times like this to point us to you. May we endure with patience. May we reach out to those around us and love the people you put in our path. In Jesus' name.